I'm J.P. Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Hi, Kiki. Hi, Tuesday. We're we're going to be like Arnold Schwarzenegger and getting our butts to Mars because we are talking about John Carter. Based off the Barsoom series by Edgar Rice Burroughs, the same author who gave us Tarzan, which explains why there's a bunch of Tarzan and John Carter crossover novels. John Carter of Mars, the you know the Barsoom series itself is responsible for a lot of the tropes that we have in modern science fiction today. Some would look at this film and say, oh, this is ripping off Star Wars, this is ripping off Dune. No, it was the originator. The original series gave us the sci-fi tropes that would create Dune and Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon and Star Wars. Even Superman. Because you've got one, uh, the story of a guy from one planet going to another planet and getting superpowers. And this book came out decades before Superman even existed. Yeah, I mean, this is a, uh, the the first of the Barsoom novels, uh, Princess of Mars, is, it was a serialized um, story. came out in a pulp magazine uh came out in 1912 so that's how far back we're we're talking about here yeah this movie technically is the 100th birthday of the character yeah and the the collected novel came out in 1917 so you know it's it's pretty uh, pretty far back there um but most yeah most of the major uh tropes that you would think about were kind of started there and most of the authors or creators that you think of as big names uh in sci-fi and horror even were inspired by this series so you know you've got ray bradbury was really big into these books um heinlein clark arthur c clark um H.P. Lovecraft even was really big into this. George Lucas, of course. James Cameron got a lot of Avatar. Oh yeah, from I was this. That. Yeah. Michael Crichton even. Strangely enough, if you if you ever watched ER, uh, there's a doctor in there named John Carter because of these books. Like that's not even a sci-fi show. But Michael Crichton was a sci-fi author and loved these books. 
So, you know, even a lot of uh, scientists and, and stuff. So like Carl Sagan was really into this uh, series as a kid and uh, loved it. A lot of uh, NASA scientists uh, cite this as one of their foundational things. You know, a lot of people were like, oh, I read those as a kid and it made me want to become, you know, a scientist or an astronaut or grow up and work at NASA or whatever. So, you know, a lot of stuff in the space program ends up being named after bits of stuff from these books. You know, you'll find a lot of stuff in the space program that has references to the Barsoom novels. So, you know, you you find references all over the place to this stuff if you know where to look. And being a hundred-year-old franchise, there were a lot of attempts to turn this into a film. And every one of them went into developmental hell before we got to this one. Every studio you can think of tried to make their own John Carter movie. Whether it was live action or animation. And it just never happened. Even this movie was stuck in developmental hell at Disney for about 10 years before it came out. Interestingly enough, uh, this was not the first movie to be made from it. Um, Yeah, everyone's <laughs> favorite mockbuster studio, The Asylum. When they found out Disney was doing a John Carter movie, oh, hey, this is public domain. We can do this. And did their own version of A Princess of Mars, later retitled John Carter of Mars, a few years before Disney got theirs out. Only they modernized it a little bit. It was a more modern soldier as opposed to a Civil War soldier. In their version, John Carter was a uh, army sniper who had been serving in Afghanistan and then... After he was wounded, he signs up for some secret government uh, testing experiment involving teleportation <laughs> and gets sent to a planet called Barsoom, which is not Mars. It's just some planet way outside of our solar system. There is no reason for it to be called a princess of Mars. They just wanted you to know it was based on the book. I mean, as far <laughs> as modernization of classic literature goes, I've heard worse. The The funniest part about that is their version starred Antonio Sabato Jr. and Tracy Lords. Yes, that Tracy Lords. <laughs> Um, and they mostly filmed it at Vasquez Rocks, which if you don't know the name, you'll know it as Kirk's Rock. Every cheap production's alien planet is just that same rock formation. They, uh, that was the first one to actually get made. They made it about three years before Disney got their version out. The thing is, though, is that, yeah, everybody tried to make a version of this story. Uh, at one point, our, our old friend Ray Harryhausen 
in like the the 50s or so i think was gonna make a stop motion aided version of it probably was gonna make the tharks stop motion disney has held the rights since the 80s and that's on uh, katzenberg apparently katzenberg was a really big fan of the books and really wanted this movie to get made. Of course, Katzenberg hasn't been employed by Disney in a very long time. This one, I think, was... The version we got was mostly done under Iger, I think. The fact that this bombed so hard... When yeah, it, it is it is Disney's biggest financial loss in their company's history. And also, this was the most expensive movie ever made at that time. The fact that it, it ended up uh, bombing so hard ended up leading to the resignation of Rich Ross, who was the then head of Walt Disney Studios. John Carter was already in development when Ross moved over from his work at the Disney Channel into his role at uh, Walt Disney Studios. He was blamed because people said, well, you know, it was still kind of in pre-production. You could have pulled the project entirely. In fact, there were movies that he did pull uh, the plug on. They also said that he could have reduced the budget and that would have minimized the eventual loss for the company. He had already, he ended up doing that with uh, the Lone Ranger film that they put out around the same time and that ended up minimizing some of the the damage from that because that film also was not a massive success but he ended up backing the film because it seems that what he didn't fully understand was uh Iger had just started a deal with Lucasfilm. <laughs> it seems that uh, what Ross may have misunderstood was that he might have seen John Carter as Disney's answer to Star Wars, not understanding that Disney was about to have Star Wars. The right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing. Yeah. You know, if, if Iger was planning a big deal and Ross was moving ahead with faulty information perhaps then i do kind of feel bad for the guy and um, this was planned as a trilogy but i think a lot of people in the aftermath of this blamed it on a marketing failure i went back and watched the first trailer of this it's all of the action scenes set to a led zeppelin song which does not does not convey the tone of this movie. You know, Guardians of the Galaxy and the Taika Waititi Thor movies, they can pull that off because that is a reflective of the tone of the movie. That is not... Led Zeppelin over action scenes is not the tone that this movie has. 
when you get into a theater and you watch Guardians of the Galaxy or you watch like Ragnarok or something, that is exactly what you're getting. You know, that is the payoff of those trailers. You don't feel like you were promised one thing and then delivered another. You go, yep, this is exactly the vibe I thought I was getting based on the trailer. But if you watch those early John Carter trailers and then you watch the film, you're like, this is not at all what I was promised. What I personally, and and I kind of said this before, I I was a little worried about what kind of movie they were going to deliver. And then when I saw the film, I was like, oh, this is going to bomb immediately. Because I saw this in theaters like opening weekend. And I thought, this is absolutely going to tank. Because I was like, Disney marketed this in exactly the wrong way. And in retrospect, I still have all of the same beliefs I had walking in. Which, Which was, if I could go back and give them advice... What they needed to do with this to salvage it, if there was any chance of salvaging this, was to be like, hey, you've seen Star Wars. You've seen Avatar. You've seen, you know, Dune or whatever. You know, just throw out all these names of science fiction franchises. Now, watch the story that inspired all of them. From the creative minds of Tarzan. Yeah, you know, from from the guy that gave you Tarzan, from the, you know, whatever. That That's what you needed to do, was be like, hey, all those other films, they're ripoffs. Now watch the original. That's what you needed to do. Because what a modern audience is going to see watching John Carter is, wow, this is the most tropey ripoff movie ever because they're not going to realize that this is the thing everybody else stole from unless you tell them. Because I hate to say it, if you had made this film in the 50s, everybody's going to be like, oh my God, the Barsoom novels are being made into a movie. This is the new hotness. You make this movie in 2012, people are going to be like, bar what now? Because nobody remembers these books. I'm sorry. You have to be the right kind of sci-fi nerd to know these. This is a very niche audience. And even the title of this movie went through several changes. The original, they were actually going to call this movie Princess of Mars. And then the princess and the frog didn't do so well. So, And their infinite wisdom, Disney's infinite wisdom was, it's because it had the word princess in the title. Let's take the word princess out of the title of this movie. And then they were going to call it John Carter of Mars. Which is fine. We see that title at the very end of the movie. And then there was a movie called Mars Needs Moms that bombed it hard. Oh, it's because it had the word Mars in it. Let's take the word Mars out of the title. Women to see this movie. We don't think women like science fiction. We're also going to use that to take the word Mars out of the title. 
oh, don't forget to show more of uh, John Carter without a shirt in the trailer because we need women to watch this movie. I mean, I'm not going to say that part was necessarily bad, but... As a woman who loves science fiction, you got to call BS on that. Well, yeah, I mean, I I call BS on the entire thought process of everything. Calling this movie John Carter was maybe the biggest mistake in a giant, you know, seven-layer dip of mistakes. <laughs> I, I John don't... Carter is just such a generic name. If you ask the average Joe on the street... What kind of movie do you think when you hear the name John Carter, they're not going to think about this epic space opera. They're going to think about like a cop on the edge trying to get revenge or something. Yeah, you could tell people that John Carter was a movie about literally anything and they would be like, I buy that as a title of that movie. John Carter, he's a cop, and he's out to clean the streets up. Yeah, okay, I buy that as a movie. John Carter, he's a sniper in a war zone, and he's going to save the president. Yeah, I buy that as a movie. John Carter, he's a man looking for love. Like, yeah, I buy that as a movie. Like, you can literally use that title for any movie and I I buy that as a movie. It's the most generic name ever. You ask me if I want to go see a movie called John Carter, and I'm like, probably not. Because I don't know what that movie is. But, you know, if you ask me if I want to go watch a movie called A Princess of Mars, or even John Carter of Mars, I'm probably down for that movie. I mean, I'm not super stoked for either of those movies. Maybe maybe a better title. I mean, granted, the original title was just for a serialized pulp story, so it could use a punch-up as well, you know? Mm -hmm. But I'm more interested in either of those titles than I am for just a movie called John Carter. So... This entire thing was just a mess from beginning to end. But you need to do something more to get the audience interested. I mean, they, they tried to sell this as an action movie. And it yeah, there's action, but it's not an action movie, you know? Yeah, I I also feel really bad because this is another one where the... The sexism kind of got it because the female lead for for this, the, the woman who who plays Deja the princess, uh, Lynn Collins, apparently kind of right after it bombed, somebody told her that she was going to have to lay low for a while because... It was like, oh, well, you were in a movie that bombed. And she was like, why why should I lay low for a while? Uh, Taylor Kitsch, his next movie was Battleship. (laughs) 
why why is it her fault the movie bombed and he he went on to make Battleship, you know? Yeah. So, uh, you know. And I'm and I'm not laying the blame at the the feet of any of the actors, you know. It it takes it takes a while, you know, if you know my theory of filmmaking, it takes several steps down before I'll blame an actor for a failure of a film. Not even but, the greatest actor can save a bad script. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like once you've got, you know, bad marketing and bad production and bad script writing and bad directing and what it's like, no, the greatest actor in the world cannot save that. So it's, it's going to take me many, many, many steps before I blame anything on an actor. But the thing is, though, is that we're going to have to get into the even bigger bugaboo about this film, which is maybe there's a reason it took so long for it to be made. <laughs> My first thing was right at the beginning when our main hero is a Confederate soldier. And here's the fun part of the story, kids. We kind of didn't get into this when we talked about Tarzan. But it's gonna have to come up when we talk about John Carter. You can divorce a single Tarzan film from Edgar Rice Burroughs a little bit easier than you can divorce a, a Barsoom film from Edgar Rice Burroughs a little bit, I think. If you dig too deep into Tarzan, you can't do that anymore. But if you keep it on the very surface level of Tarzan, you can. And herein lies the problem. Uh, if you've never looked too deeply into Edgar Rice Burroughs as a person... <laughs> I'm about to ruin Edgar Rice Burroughs for you. And I don't apologize for that. Edgar Rice Burroughs turned his hero into a Confederate soldier because Edgar Rice Burroughs really did believe in the ideals of the Confederacy. He was a very big supporter of eugenics he was a believer in what is called scientific racism which is in no way scientific and if you think it is you don't understand science he believed that the uh english nobility are the most superior people on the face of the earth this explains why his two of his most popular characters are a white guy who became king of the apes and a white guy who became king of a bunch of red-skinned people yeah i mean this john carter movie does kind of like a tattoo like let's let let's take the clay of Mars and use it as tattoos to explain why the Tharks call them red. But yeah, no, he he meant he meant it more as a a very particular 
like he he meant their skin was red. Um, he he meant it very racially. And um, as you read further into the Barsoom books, they get very eugenicsy, and John Carter begins to like sort of ethnically cleanse Mars in a way. <laughs> yeah, it's it gets a little weird. Like it's yeah. He wrote like a whole book about how like the people it's not part of the Barsoom books, but he wrote like a whole nother book about like how the people of Venus had practiced eugenics for like two thousand years and therefore they were like the most perfect civilization ever. How if you practiced eugenics you could get rid of all crime yeah no like there's a reason that like the tharks are noble savages who murder the weak and call the like he thought that was the right thing to do even in the tarzan books it comes up as you read later in the tarzan series there's a reason that tarzan himself is when he gets back to human civilization, he finds out he's not just a man, he's an English nobleman. Like, he can't just be a dude, he has to be, like, a dude that was born to the right sort of people. And that's why he can be king of the apes. Even the apes that he ends up with practice eugenics among themselves. It okay it's 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 all in the books you know <laughs> and he he wrote he wrote a lot of stuff in his private papers it it wasn't published until after he died and people went through his stuff and was like oh look unpublished works of his let's publish them and then people were like oh maybe you shouldn't have published that stuff that it was like oh my thoughts on racism are that it's a good thing and we should maybe do more eugenics. It's it's awful. It's he was not a great guy. And if you read his stuff with a critical eye, and I mean critical in the the academic sense, you know, if you actually look at what's in there, it's in there. And I think once you get past the very surface stuff of like a guy goes to another planet and now he can jump higher and is stronger because of gravity you know yeah once john carter gets into the politics of the planet and stuff like that it becomes a little dicey to make these books into something that a modern audience would find acceptable yeah you would have to go further 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 away from the source material yeah it would have to become a more just generic this is a guy with superpowers. You can do that kind of okay in the in the thing, and it's just kind of mildly cringy in the first movie that like, oh, he was a Confederate soldier. Maybe he was pressed into service. And there's just some mildly cringy lines about like, please don't make me marry a guy. A life of servitude is horrible you wouldn't fight for that would you and you know there's like a cringy moment where you're like wasn't this guy a confederate soldier <laughs> you know yeah and it's kind of hand waved away 
and it's just he he was a confederate soldier but he seems nice enough to the apache tribe and refuses to kill them he speaks the language he speaks the language so there disney kind of tries to hand wave the less modernly appropriate parts of the story and just quickly gets our ass to mars but this would have been a real problem. Edgar Rice Burroughs was a guy who created two very influential characters and series that still have very important impacts on modern culture. Tarzan and the Barsoom series are very influential, and I do not want to take away from that, okay? Much like H.P. Lovecraft, you know, all of H.P. Lovecraft's work, very influential on modern horror. However, both Edgar Rice Burroughs and H.P. Lovecraft, massive racists. Okay, Don't look up what he named his cat. Do not look up the name of H.P. Lovecraft's cat. Seriously, do not. Do not do that. But the thing about Edgar Rice Burroughs is academics will not for the most part touch Edgar Rice Burroughs because he was such a toxic person and most of his work is extremely vile once you skim the very surface so it's interesting how little of that you know Disney had to do when doing Tarzan which, like I said, we didn't really get into it with Tarzan. But with John Carter, it's a little more difficult to ignore because they kept the part where he's a Confederate soldier. This is where I kind of tip my hat to the asylum. At least they modernize it, that he's a modern American soldier. It's still problematic on that front, but less so. Well, it's it also takes away the um part where you go guys there's not an atmosphere on mars which is one of the things of burroughs was working from kind of the best he had at the time he wanted to be a i am a very educated man who is writing with cutting edge science and for the most part, that's true, but he wasn't a scientist, so he was the kind of guy who was just reading the newspaper and going, ah, look at what they just discovered. The only problem is, is that he was reading a translation of a translation of a scientific paper, and it was from, like, a French scientist who had used like a French word that was based on a Greek word that once it eventually got translated into English had been translated as canals, which led the non-scientific newspaper reporters of the day being like, ah, they've looked up through telescopes at Mars, they've discovered canals, Therefore, Mars is just covered with these little rivers, but no oceans. And that led Burroughs to think, oh, well, Mars must have been a place where once there were oceans, 
And now it is mostly desert with smaller rivers. And compared it to, you know, a, a desert environment, you know, Egypt or something on, on Earth. So no vast oceans, but it's an entire planet that looks kind of like Egypt. There are rivers here and there, mostly desert. And that's where he got the idea of the dying planet, maybe used to be oceans, now just rivers. Except that word meant more like crevices, craters, what we know of now through, you know, satellite images and, you know, probes and stuff that we've sent there where you can see the crevices on Mars. But the original scientist wasn't trying to suggest that he saw water or rivers. He was suggesting that he saw, like, canyons. And it was just a lost-in-translation kind of thing. So no biker mice on Mars? Yeah. But it just, it's a thing that, when you're looking at it as a modern audience, yeah, okay, it's it's a neat kind of story, but you have to put yourself back in the idea of, well, if I was a person reading this in 1912, I would go, oh, neat. What if there is water on Mars and a whole civilization of people with, like, technology and flying machines? But that's several steps of fantasy removed from where we are now. More probably why the asylum version made their basume very, very far away from our galaxy and not the actual planet Mars. Yeah, which is why I think the Barsoom novels are good for lifting tropes from. But when you try to make a direct adaptation from it, you know, it, it may not be the best of ideas. So let's talk about how they actually did did it and who they got to be in it because we've already name dropped our two leads here taylor kitsch a lot of people may know from friday night lights which i never saw but i know him from being kind of sort of the person they told us was gambit in wolverine yeah x-men origins wolverine yeah yeah, he had a weird accent and some playing cards, and they called him Gambit. Sure, dude. And then he's in this, and then uh, apparently he's in that uh, Battleship movie. <laughs> I never saw it, so. <laughs> I never saw. Our our princess, of, of course, is uh, played by... Lynn Collins, who was also in X-Men Origins Wolverine, but she played Wolverine's love interest, Kayla Silverfox. She was also in the first season of True Blood. That, she, she was better in True Blood. That's kind of where, where I personally know her from. In our kind of, we got a lot of mocap in this because... We uh, have the the Tharks, which are the the green four-armed uh, aliens. Our main ones playing that are Samantha Morton as Sola, 
Uh, and Samantha Morton, you may know from uh, Walking Dead. Uh, you might know her from Harlots. I, I think I first saw her in Minority Report. She and uh, Willem Dafoe, who plays her father uh, slash king, Tars Tarkas, they were like on set on stilts in uh, motion capture suits and everything. So it wasn't just a voice performance. Thomas Hayden Church uh, was in there as um, Tal Hodges, which is the rival, the, to, uh... the rival um, for Tars Tarkas. And weirdly enough, David Schwimmer. <laughs> Is in like one scene, I think. Uh, John Favreau is the uh, the bookie who's taking the bets. So, so we've got Happy Hogan, Ross from Friends, the Green Goblin, and the Sandman. Yeah, it's a it's a strange kind of collection there, but yeah, the uh, female uh, Thark that's always giving them trouble. Is now on Bridgerton. She's like the the um Baroness Featherington um on Bridgerton, which I find hilarious. Our main kind of villain, the Thern, the little parasite guys that go from world to world, is uh, Mark Strong, who is one of the greatest villains working today. I gotta say. You may remember him in the uh, Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes, or he's now in the Kingsman movies as Merlin. Also in Shazam. Yeah, also in Shazam. He was in uh, Green Lantern. Sorry to bring that up. Uh, as Sinestro. He's he's one of those that once you see him or hear him, you'll immediately go, hey, that guy. I mean, he does a good job here for what he's given. Karen Hines shows up as the uh, father for our uh, Princess of Mars. You'll know him, a Disney connection, for being the uh, troll king in Frozen and Frozen 2. And if you're Watching uh, Justice League, he's Steppenwolf. If you're watching Game of Thrones, he's Mance Raider. I mean, he's in everything. He's got parts in the Harry Potter franchise and all that as well. Um, just recently did a uh, great job in uh, Belfast. Uh, which was uh, Kenneth Branagh's most recent movie, uh, which was uh, very good. And then, as our other villain, we've got Dominic West, which you'll know from 300 or um, Punisher Warzone or uh, The Wire, if you're watching The Wire. One last one is uh, Kantos Khan, who is the uh, guy who works for our princess. 
we've got James Purefoy, who I love seeing in things. He he worked on a great show that I love called The Following, which unfortunately got canceled, and I'm still mad about that. He was in uh, Rome. He was in Knight's Tale. Uh, interestingly enough, he was the original V in V for Vendetta before Hugo Weaving took over and uh, left in a couple of weeks into filming. Uh, and apparently you can still see him in the film and uh, his lines are dubbed over by Hugo Weaving because he's in the costume and the, the mask and everything. Have fun watching the movie and guessing which which scenes are him and which scenes are Hugo Weaving. Um, I'll throw in Daryl Sabara as Edgar Rice Burroughs, a.k.a. Ned. Uh, you might know him as Junie from the Spide Kids movies. Ah, yeah. He is he is in this. Uh they they do add a little a little side plot where Edgar Rice Burroughs is a character in the film himself. And of course we get Brian Cranston in this for no real reason other than why not throw Brian Cranston in the first part of this movie. As the uh, union colonel who tries to recruit John Carter to join the union and hunt down Native Americans. But most of our movie takes place on Mars. There is a framing story where Edgar Rice Burroughs, mostly called Ned in the movie, is reading correspondence, supposedly posthumous correspondence, from John Carter, who says, like, hey, I've died, let me tell you my story, and he tells the story of how he found a cave full of gold, but some bald dude transported in there, tried to kill him, had a weird medallion, that medallion transported him to Mars. A whole story took place on Mars. I came back, spent ten years trying to find a medallion to send me back to Mars, couldn't find one, now I'm dead, guard my body. But really it was just a ruse to find another bald dude with a medallion. He finds a medallion and then goes back to Mars, but it's going to leave his body in a coma in this yeah, so tomb. When you, tr- when you transport with these medallions, you're not actually transporting. Your mind, your consciousness, your soul, if you want to call that, is transported into a copy of your body. While your real body is in a comatose state, wherever you're originally from. Which, uh, again, having never read any of the books, I don't know if that's accurate, but it's kind of silly to me. Yeah, like, if you're just transporting your consciousness or whatever, why would you be able to, like, run and jump and punch things harder because of the gravity? Because your body is not actually there. He even says it in the movie, I'm in a copy of my body. The general story, yes, it's the problem with this movie, my problem with this movie, is that they made no effort 
to make this movie different to what's already out. If you know, if you're if you're basing your movie on the origins of every sci-fi trope there is, you should at least do something to differ, to make it different. To 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 how are you going to take these old tropes and make them feel new? And they don't. Oh, we found the secret civilization. We have this ancient spaceship, ancient gods. A civil war between races. Here's the superhero savior of everybody. We've seen that. And again, this I get this is the original. And I will respect that this is the original story. But at least do something that makes your version unique. Or at least give us something that will make these old tropes feel new. And they don't. I also have not read the book, so I cannot... I can't say exactly what of this they're, you know, I, I've read summaries of them and, you know, I kind of know the basic flow. I do, I do like this film a lot more than you do, I think, because I can see what it's trying to do and I respect what it's trying to do. At the same time, I do question, did, did we need this? Which is silly, because, like, do you need any piece of art, you know? Like, do it because it makes you happy or because you want to or whatever. I mean, that's the point of art. In a way, it's like, what are you trying to say with this film, you know? Can you can you say something new? Which I think is your point. If if there's any you know Edgar Rice Burroughs fans or people who like the series, would love to chime in in the comments. I'm all ears to to hear to hear what you got to say. They did change a lot of it, from what I understand. You know, there's this whole plot of the the therns coming in and being like these parasites that travel from world to world. And create conflict, or at least help uh, stir up conflict. For the lulls. <laughs> well, to... At least in this movie, it seems to be for the lulls. Well, they say that they're feeding off of the resources of the planet. And that is another sci-fi trope, you know? The aliens that go from world to world using up the resources and then just moving on. And the idea seems to be that they've been working their way in from the outer edges of the solar system. And they've made it up to Mars and they've, they kind of threaten John Carter with the idea that Earth is next, you know? And they've been to Earth. The the Mark Strong's character implies that he's been to Earth before, you know, because he says he knows where Virginia is because he says, I'm, I'm John Carter from Virginia. He talks about, you know, uh, your dialect is Southern. I, I, I can hear it in your, you're from Virginia, right? Beautiful place. So these characters these 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 beings have all they're already on earth that's how john carter gets there to begin with 
because there are already scouts on that planet scouting the resources of Earth. It, but it, it, that whole thing goes by way too quickly. It, it's there because they need an explanation, and then they just quickly move away from it. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's me. The thing is there is that they have the idea of the nine rays, which is tied into the idea of the nine planets. They, the, the idea of the therns who think of themselves as gods is from the books. I mean, you know, that, that wasn't made up for the movie. The later books, I believe. Yeah, it's, it's the later books, but they're brought in. The thing is, is in the books, the the planet is being sustained by an atmosphere plant, which I think is a factory that creates an artificial atmosphere. I don't know if they were intending to show that that's how Mars has atmosphere. But I think it would have helped the audience a little bit if they'd have been like, oh, that's how they have atmosphere. The best we get is the opening narration where uh, you think Mars is dead. It's not, but it is dying. And that's all we get. Yeah, if they had been like, we're a technologically superior people, and then maybe it, it could be like, well, in the next few years will be dead or something but I feel if you're going to introduce an atmosphere machine in movie one it has to play into the plot well and the thing is is it it does at the end of the first book is my understanding that they get over in in this movie you know he like wins the heart of the princess and they get married and there's that bit where he's like Screw Earth. I'm going to stay on Mars and be John Carter of Mars. And he then said like, it, he said it. <laughs> yeah. And then you're like, yeah, we have a title. And, you know, then the Thern shows up and sends him back to Earth. Like, well, there's a similar thing in the in the book, in my understanding. But it happens after he's been on Mars for some years and he's like living a happy life and he's like, yay, I'm going to be here for the rest of my life. And then they're like, oh, there's a problem over at the factory that produces all our oxygen. And he's like, oh, I'll go fix it because I'm the hero. And he gets in there and something goes wrong. And that something that goes wrong is what sends him back to Earth. And he wakes up back on Earth and he's like, no, I've got to go back to Mars. And that's where the first book ends. One of the major plot points of this movie is that John Carter has had a wife and had a child and they die. We really never go into it that much. We know that he had a wife. He stares at a wedding ring on his hand the entire movie. We see a flashback where he's burying them after they've died. He gets over that pretty quickly. Once he, uh, once he meets uh, Lynn Collins over here. I think the idea was that they either, was that they probably died of some illness while he was away at war. Possibly. And that he heard they were sick and he was like, can I please go take care of my sick, you know, wife and daughter? And he just arrived a little too late. Because he has a line about, I got there too late, the the 
last time or whatever. And that seems to have been have broken him since he's now alone in in kind of a a, a, a grumpy man. Which that would make that would be understandable. And it seems that this new life on Mars has rejuvenated him, given him a new lease on life. And he starts off as like, I'm no one soldier anymore. I don't fight for anybody. Only doing so when they threaten the princess's life. Yeah, there is a there is a uh, constructed language in here. And it was created by the same guy who created the Navi language for the Avatar films. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do like that. And then. Did I miss something? Because all of a sudden he can understand their language. Uh, yeah, you, you did kind of miss it because it's a quick line. But uh, when they're treating John like one of the uh, hatchlings, they give him a drink. And he's like, what is that? It's something because it makes him kind of loopy. And uh, she says, it's the voice of Barsoom. You can hear it if you want to. It's basically a universal translator, but they didn't have that trope yet. So it's a drink that is a universal translator. I guess they want their hatchlings to be able to communicate right out of the egg. But it does explain why all the different creatures on Barsoom can understand each other. Hmm. It's apparently some kind of magical drink that makes it possible for you to understand everybody on the planet. I like that whole thing like wait I can understand you and then like everyone's like upset like what did you do yeah well she gave him the magic understanding drink that's what she did you told me to give him water I gave him water he's a prisoner we cannot have him you know dehydrate you just didn't say which water to give him uh one thing again this is from the original text I get it is that Mars the Barsoon people have different names for the planets, which makes sense. You know, someone from Mars is not going to know their planet is, is called Mars. Earth is, we, we, Earthlings, call that planet Mars. Would they call their planet Mars? Probably not. They don't know who Mars is. I wonder if Soom is just their word for planet. Possibly. Because everything ends in Soom. Like, she goes through and it's like, no, that's that's Barsoom, that's Jossoom, that's, you know, whatever Soom, that's, you know. So I wonder if, like, Soom is just their name for planet. Possibly. I don't know. It's it's just cool. Um, it makes more sense than the way we name planets. <laughs> we name them after gods. Pick, pick a mythological figure and shove, shove a name on it. One thing I will say, and maybe you'll disagree with me on this one, the CG actually isn't that bad for 2011, 2012. No, I, I think it holds up pretty good, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that one, I will say the CG for the characters holds up pretty well. Again, considering how much money they put into this movie is, yeah, it has to, it has to hold up. You know, it it holds up better than I would say, like the Star Wars prequels or something. Um, I w I want to say that my favorite part of the film is the like little Roadrunner dog thing. Yeah, I was going to bring up the 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 dog character, and it, 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 if they had if this had gotten like successful enough to be a full franchise. There would be, like, stuffed animals of that thing everywhere. Well, that was another thing that they kind of 
blamed the failure on, which was that there was no merchandising or no action figures. Yeah, no action figures, no like Thark toys. (laughs) No video game. Yeah, no, no video game. No, no nothing. This movie has everything I should like. But somehow I don't. And I think, you know. Yeah, has... w- watching this movie on the rewatch, I I liked it less than I liked it initially. I remember liking this better in the theater than I liked it in the rewatch. And it kind of seems to drag on. There's a lot of setup with the um Edgar Rice Burroughs reading the letters and then Carter looking for the cave of gold and then him and Brian Cranston being like join the Union Army no I don't wanna fight the Apache no I don't wanna run into a cave with me no I don't wanna like it takes a while to get into it and you're like is this our hero movie? I do not accept this as our hero. Find me a better hero. You know, like, it takes a while for you to get into it and kind of vibe with this guy. And a lot of it is because, like, they're like, hey, what's up? I'm a Confederate soldier. And immediately you're like, nope, nope. No. Yeah, that that was my big thing is like, oh, you work for the Confederate? Oh. Oh, I I already don't like this character. Yeah, can we get a better backstory for this character, please? That's <laughs> again, that is the that's why I will I will kind of tip my hat to the asylum. At least they made it a modern soldier and kind of erase that problematic part. Does bring up a different part, but yeah. You could have given him a different backstory and still had him like from Virginia at the same time. I mean, you could have made him a deserter. That would have been awesome. Um, It would have fit in with the whole, I don't want to fight anybody's war anymore. That would have been great. You know? And then that will play into later on with him not wanting to fight in the arena and not wanting to be a a soldier, uh, a soldier for the Thark. But then it's a situation where if I don't fight, people will die. I mean, you know, you could have sidestepped that a little bit, you know. You know, like I said, when you're when you're trying to do something like Tarzan, you can kind of just stay on the surface. But when you're trying to do the Barsoom stuff, the deeper you get, you know. Yeah. The plot is very kind of straightforward in the in the sense of there are warring factions. That are being manipulated by this outside force who is just interested in the destruction of the planet. The, the, the one true hero showing up that can save them all. And it's a white guy. Uh, yeah, I mean, a little a little less obvious here because they took the idea of the the red people 
in in the books it's very much more delineated there are multiple races on the planet and the the books are very stratified by race but in this one they just use like military colors you know the the tharks are the green martians and then there are the quote unquote red martians which they took to mean they take the red soil of mars and they turn it into tattoos they all have tans too yeah they make the actors look a little more tan than they are generally for most of them except for mark strong who is playing the thern and they make him look very very pale but in in the books it's very much supposed to be like ah look john carter the white man has come to save us all they straight up call him the white ape which is another name they gave to tarzan yeah uh burroughs liked that (laughs) that one but yeah the the, but when the the Tharks are betting on which side, he they tell John Carter like, "Oh yeah, the Red Martians have come, and uh, the the ones in the the red outfits fight the ones in the blue outfits, and we take bets on which side is going to win this time. But mostly we just stay out of it. And you see that it's basically just their military out uh, uh, uniforms they're doing. So they they kind of flatten the the racial aspect in this into just oh look you know one of them wears red uniforms one of them wears blue uniforms and we're treating this like a military conflict or a sports team or something big battle the battle is actually pretty nice it's well choreographed the big final battle and there's that nice little reveal that the bad guy can shapeshift and mimic other people so we do get that that little scene where he like shapeshifts into the princess and tricks into John. He shapeshifts into John. I like that little that little part where he shapeshifts into the princess and then he runs away and then the princess is like, "Quick, John, I'm getting away." You know, it's like <laughs> that's that's a good line. Yeah, the 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 joke about you know when when the battle starts and one of the guys goes, "Hey, this is the greatest wedding ever." Yeah, trope, but. I it got a laugh out of me. The Tharks not being used to fighting on the same side as the the humanoids, and so they're kind of having trouble telling them apart. And so, like, some of them are waving like their colors in in front of the Tharks and being like, "No, no, no! Look, we're on your side! Don't kill us! Don't kill us! See, see, look, we're wearing the right color!" You know. Yeah, it it was the action that the original trailers were kind of trying to. To manifest, as it were. And then, you know, we get our our, our final, uh, I am just a, a poor man with nothing to offer. Your princess, will you marry me? After I've only known you for a few days and just yesterday, I was still mourning my wife and child. I, I'm, I'm not going to harsh on him too bad for the still mourning the wife and child because, you know, mourning lasts a lifetime. Mm-hmm. So... I don't know. I thought the wedding ceremony was really beautiful. I like the little water cup and the under the light of the two moons, and you know that's really beautiful. Yeah, that was a nice that was a nice setup, and the drinking out of the 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 chalice. uh, But uh, you know, yeah, the the wedding scene was good. Uh, The even though I don't feel 
that the ending was earned. The wedding wasn't be- between uh, the princess and John. I don't feel that that was earned by the end of the movie. But it was a nice, you know, nice scene. Apparently, they had to do some reshoots because that was less earned in the original cut. Mm. <laughs> so they they added some stuff of them, like, growing closer and having moments. It does bother me, the whole copy of the body thing. A body, even in a comatose state, still needs nourishment to survive. So if the body is locked in a tomb, who's going to feed it nourishment and clean up after the waste? You know what? It's it's fine. It's fine. It's, it's fine. a movie. I, I'm I'm thinking way too hard about a movie about a guy to get transported to Mars via magic talisman. It's so bizarre this film because, like I said, I I liked it so much. In the theater, I was like, you know, I think they just marketed it wrong. I think if people would just give it a chance on its own terms. And then watching it again, I think I've changed my mind a little bit. You know, you you brought up the question. Is this story even sal- salvageable as a film franchise? Could you have even taken the core story of this do it in a way that doesn't feel like you're ripping off the things that already ripped off the original story and still make this a film franchise. I wish I could have the answer to that. I don't know. The thing is, is I don't know if there's enough story. Having not read the books, I don't know if there's enough story that can be removed from Burroughs' more disturbing ideas. You know? Mm -hmm. So, let's ask the question. Does John Carter have the magic? No, it does not. I really wanted to come into this movie liking it. Again, this is the first time I've seen the movie. I've never seen the original movie. All I know is that it was based off a book. It is the story that all modern science fiction has ripped off. And it bombed at the box office. I don't think any number of advertising, no matter how you advertise this movie, I don't know if it was saving any of it. So I'm going to say no magic. Oh, this one's a complicated one for me because I really wanted to do this movie because I really remembered liking it. And I was a champion of this film. I was like, oh, there's there's good in this movie. They just screwed up the marketing. But looking back on it, I don't know. It. Maybe it could have been better, but I don't know if it should have been better. Hmm. That's that's an interesting way of saying it. I think that there are some things, you know, and I have the same problem when I go back to, to Lovecraft, you know? Because there are a lot of things that I love, I, I, I love, huh? based on Lovecraft stories. But sometimes when you go back and you look at the original stories, you're like, oh, 
Um, maybe, (laughs) maybe we'll just take the idea of Cthulhu and plop him over here and get rid of all of the rest of that story, you know? Looking at some of the Burroughs stuff, you know, it's kind of like, maybe let's take the idea of Guy raised in the wilderness by things that ought not be raising humans. That's an interesting idea. Let's take dude that goes to a different planet and gets powers because of a weird thing. That's a good idea. Let's take, you know, desert planet idea and princesses and adventures. That's a good idea. Let's take, you know, it's like you kind of want to just pick and choose little tiny tropes and then go, and let's get rid of all of that other stuff and just put that on a shelf somewhere and forget that forever. And that's kind of where we get every other sci-fi thing ever. Yeah. And that's kind of where we get Star Wars and Avatar and Dune and, you know, and I kind of want to go, like, in a world where I've already got Star Wars and Avatar and Dune and stuff, do I really have to go back and have, like, all of John Carter with the, like, and he's a Confederate soldier and we got to deal with all the weird racial aspects and the, I don't know. So, I don't know. It's like, is the magic I'm seeing in John Carter there because this movie has magic? Or is it just kind of the reflected stuff I'm remembering from other things? I don't know. This film has all the stuff that I like. It has aliens. It has superpowers. It has action. It has beautiful women. I will admit that. It's got all the really great things that Yeah, it has beautiful women in very little clothing. It has beautiful men in very little clothing. It's like, yeah, it has everything you want. It has sword fights. It has laser guns going pew-pew. It has, like, flying machines. It has... Yeah, even the CG. I will admit the CG looks great for a 2011-2012 film. It has giant green things with forearms. It has a little like roadrunner dog it yeah but i was so bored watching this there are moments where i was even and i was so in i I was so jazzed to watch this movie again and i got so bored watching this movie i was like why am i bored watching this and that's why I, I was asking myself, like, why am i bored watching it it has everything i would want in this kind of movie this has a Michael Giacchino score. Why am I bored watching this? I just felt nothing for these characters. Why should I care about these characters? This movie did not give me a reason to care about any character in this movie. Yeah, they keep telling you that the princess is smart, but they don't really show you that the princess is smart. She kind of has one thing where she's like, Lo, I have built a machine. I don't know. It's so bizarre. So uh, you're not sure about the magic, and that's fine. I I, I will accept that. 
So let's 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 move on to next week. A relatively recent film, a movie that's only been out what maybe a month or so. The Disney Plus original movie Sneakerella. Kiki, uh, you really want to talk about this one, so we're going to talk about this one. Yeah, it's a kind of new adaptation of the Cinderella story. They've uh, gender flipped their main character and they've brought it into the modern day. And uh, we're going to take a look and see how that went. This will also be, I believe, our first Disney Plus original movie that we've talked about. Pretty yeah, I, I think I think it will be. Uh, we've talked about some of the series they've done, but I think this might be our first movie. Yeah. So come back for that as we talk about Sneakerella. And uh, we will talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversation online on Facebook at Rewatching the Magic. Twitter at Rewatch the Magic. And of course, new episodes every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it.